without a doubt, the most popular passage from Ecclesiastes is chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a, plant, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. You know, most find those words to be true and meaningful. But some, in spite of what's going on in the world today, would probably question the validity of there ever being a time for war. You know, no one can deny that people are dying in wars being fought around the world, and the threat of nuclear weapons in the hands of Iran and Korea makes us all nervous. But what should we do about it? Our president has a tendency to talk tough, thinking the threat of overwhelming power will keep us safe. Others think when tensions are high, we should keep silent, that it's not a time to speak or to throw stones. And, of course, there are some who believe it's never right to fight. After all, Jesus did say, turn the other cheek, and doesn't that mean conflict should be avoided at all cost? Well, some would say yes, others would say no, and both can quote scripture to support their case. Anyone who has read the Old Testament knows that it's full of warfare, and obviously God has used war to accomplish his purposes in the past. But does that give us the green light to go to war today? The New Testament doesn't issue a call to arms, contrary to the thinking during the time of the Crusades. But it does speak of spiritual warfare and the need to fight spiritual battles. It even pictures the end of time as a cosmic battle with Jesus conquering all who would fight against him. So warfare is not foreign to the word of God, and conflict is not unheard of in the kingdom of God. In fact, in our text for today, we discover Timothy was commissioned to fight the good fight. What did Paul mean by that? And what does that charge have to do with conflicts in the world, in our homes, and even in our churches? Let's see if we can't pull this together and find out application of this text. The first thing we note is that Timothy has indeed been commissioned 
to fight. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight. The command Paul is referring to was the assignment for Timothy to stay in Ephesus and to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Some in Ephesus had begun viewing themselves as knowledgeable teachers of the law and had been making confident assertions about things they did not understand. They had it wrong. And it was Timothy's job to straighten them out. Now, that wasn't an easy assignment. Those men were leaders in the church in Ephesus, and Timothy was an outsider and a young man at that. For him to confront the established teachers in a church was a frightening prospect, and chances were pretty good that to do so would lead to a fight. Not a fight with fists, but a fight with words. They weren't going to give up their positions of authority without a fight. Paul knew it, and so did Timothy. But Timothy wasn't a fighter by nature. So Paul felt it necessary to remind him of his commission. And that is what he was doing when he mentioned the prophecies previously made concerning him. When Paul invited Timothy to join him on his second missionary journey, the elders of his church apparently set him apart to go with Paul and to serve as his assistant. And in 1 Timothy 4.14, Paul reminded Timothy not to neglect the spiritual gift that had been bestowed on him through prophetic utterances with the laying on of hands by the presbytery, by the elders. Now, we really don't understand all that was involved in the prophetic utterances, the laying on of hands, and the bestowal of spiritual gifts. But it was all part of some type of ordination or commissioning service. We know Paul and Barnabas were set apart for the work to which God had called them by the prophets and teachers in Antioch. And the prophecies that were made concerning Timothy were no doubt intended to encourage him and to prepare him for the battles he would have to fight. Furthermore, in his second letter, Paul makes it clear that Timothy must be strong and anticipate suffering hardship as a soldier of Christ Jesus. He had been commissioned to fight with weapons, but not the weapons of our warfare, weapons that are physical in nature. He was to fight with spiritual weapons because the battles we fight are spiritual. And the weapons we are to use are divine words of truth that destroy speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and that take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's what Timothy was commissioned to do, and that's what leaders in the church have been commissioned to do. They're to fight the good fight. Let's begin again with verse 18 and continue on a bit. 
This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Timothy was to fight the good fight. He wasn't to go looking for a fight. He wasn't to hit town with a chip on his shoulder. He wasn't to go in exerting his authority and showing everyone who was boss. He was to go into Ephesus with a specific objective. To silence those who were teaching strange doctrines. That was the battle he was sent to fight. Now I'm sure there were many other things in the church he could have fought over. I'm sure he didn't like everything that was being done and all the decisions that were being made. He may not have liked the music that the Ephesians used in worship. He may not have liked the way they ordered their services. He may not have approved of their financial priorities. And churches do fight over such things. People get mad and leave the church over some pretty petty things and feel justified in doing so. But not every fight is a good fight. So before going into battle, be it in the church, in our homes, or between nations, the question has to be asked, is this a good fight? Is this a necessary one? You know, some things aren't worth fighting over. And to do so causes unnecessary suffering for everyone. So we must choose our battles carefully and make sure they are worth fighting for. Above all else, we must keep faith. We must stay faithful to the one who sent us into battle and keep his objectives in mind. We can't make it personal. We can't let our battles degenerate into what I want as opposed to what you want. The commander has issued the order and it's his objective that we must be fighting for. How easy it is in the heat of a battle to forget our primary objective, to let our fight become nothing more than a contest of wills, and winning becomes all that, that matters to us. When that happens in the church, everyone loses. When it happens in a home, communication breaks down and walls go up. When it happens on the battlefield, Might may prevail, but might doesn't make right. We should never go into battle just because we think we can win. We go into battle because something good is being challenged, and we must fight to preserve it. A good fight, a righteous fight, is one that stays faithful to the revealed objective of the commander-in-chief. And one that is fought with a good conscience. Now, we do have to be careful when talking about a good conscience. Some believe it's our conscience that tells us the difference between right and wrong, but that's not true. 
God is the one who reveals what is right and what is wrong. If not specifically for the immediate situation, at least in principle, so we can determine through study, prayer, and godly counsel the right course of action. You know, contrary to what Jiminy Cricket said, we can't let our conscience be our guide. All a conscience is supposed to do is push us in the right direction, nudge us to do what we know we should do and stop us from doing what we know we shouldn't. So for a conscience to work properly, we must know what is right and what is wrong. You know, Paul said that he had lived his life with a perfectly good conscience before God, even when he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor because he thought he was doing what God wanted him to do. But he wasn't. And there are many who think they're serving God when they are in fact fighting against him. They fight with a good conscience, but they're not faithful to the revealed word of God because they don't know it. And sadly, there are a lot of people who fight in ignorance of the truth. We do it in the church when we don't know all the facts and won't make the effort to find out what God has said. We do it in our homes when we simply want to assume the worst of an alienated family member. We do it as nations when we do as we're told, even when we know we shouldn't. And the teachers in Ephesus made confident assertions about the law, even when they knew what they were saying wasn't the whole truth. Now, they may not have fully understood the nature of grace, but they had to have known that what they were teaching was not the good news of God. Still, they taught it. People were listening to them, and some, no doubt, were giving up their sinful ways in the face of legalistic intimidation. So they violated their conscience and said things they knew weren't really true. They figured the end justifies the means. They had proven themselves to be effective leaders. They were seeing results, and that was really what mattered to them. Some years ago, I was shocked to hear a very prominent preacher say to a room full of preachers that if we wanted our people to evangelize, to bring others to our church, we would have to convince them that our church is the only church in town, and if people don't come to our church, they're lost. His approach apparently worked because he built huge churches wherever he went. But surely he knew what he was saying wasn't true. What he wanted to accomplish was good. And I, too, would love to see the church grow. I'd love to see more people here every Sunday. And he was on to something because a personal invitation is by far the most effective way to get new people to come to a church. But I'll not try to convince you of something that isn't true 
to get you to do something that is good for the church. In fact, it may very well have been that kind of thinking that caused some of the leaders in the church at Ephesus to suffer shipwreck in regard to their faith. They have, may have stopped trusting that God would do what he said he'd do if they'd just be faithful and simply preach and teach the truth. It was Timothy's job to confront them, to get them to realize they had lost faith in God in an attempt to be effective. They had actually perverted the gospel and denied the power of God. Timothy's job was to restore them to faith and faithfulness. And that is always the objective when fighting the good fight. It's not to destroy the opponent. It's to restore him. Let's read again our text, all the way through verse 20 this time. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith, and in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Hymenaeus and Alexander. What do we know about them? Not much. Alexander was a very common name. And Paul does mention in Alexander the coppersmith who vigorously opposed his teaching and did him much harm, but that may be another Alexander. Hymenaeus, on the other hand, was a rather unusual name. Paul spoke of a Hymenaeus and Philetus who had gone astray from the truth and were upsetting the faith of some by saying the resurrection had already taken place and they had missed it. And that may be the Hymenaeus Paul is talking about here. But be that as it may, Paul says he delivered Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan that they might be taught not to blaspheme. Now that sounds serious, and it is, but it's probably not what you think it is. He wasn't condemning them to hell. He was putting them out of the church in the hope that they would repent. That's what it meant when he said something similar in 1 Corinthians 5. And in order for us to understand what he means here, we really need to read what he said to the Corinthians. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant, and have not mourned instead, in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present." In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, 
that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now that's a hard teaching. And it sounds harsh. But delivering someone to Satan was Paul's way of making a disobedient Christian come face to face with his sin. Whether it was sin of blatant immorality or false teaching, by putting them out of the church and refusing to fellowship with them, Paul hoped they would realize the seriousness of their sin and repent. Apparently it worked in Corinth. For in his second letter, he told the church to reaffirm their love for the one who had been punished. It had been sufficient. It had worked. He was ready to be restored. And restoration is the goal of spiritual warfare, at least as it relates to people. On a cosmic level, it's a struggle against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We know Christ will win that fight. We just have to remain on the winning side and use the armor of God to stand firm. But with regard to people, our goal is not banishment to the bottomless pit and the lake of fire. It's restoration. We confront error. We fight the good fight for truth, not to defeat anyone, but to restore them, to bring them back to faith. That is our objective in battle. Now, obviously, that won't work with people and nations that don't share our faith in Christ. But it will work in our homes and in our churches if we're faithful to our commander-in-chief. If we limit our fights to good fights, keep them from becoming personal, and always fight in good conscience, we will know the joy of bringing back 
one another to faith and back to love. And as we've already discovered in our study, that is the goal of our instruction, the goal of all teaching that takes place in the church. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, we have an enemy who wants to stop that from taking place. So we have to be willing to fight him and confront those who have been deceived by him. That means there may very well be times of conflict in the church. But the right kind of a church fight can be a good thing. So don't let a good fight frighten you or keep you out of the church. Gratefully, we are not in the midst of a heated battle right now. But if we are faithful to our commission, there will no doubt be fights in our future. Because of that, we don't invite you to come to a place of perfect peace and harmony. We invite you to enlist as a soldier of the cross. And together we will do our very best to bring men and women to faith in Christ. And we will fight to keep them there.